The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in December 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome Jack O'Brien, who wears two hats, one as the longtime artistic director of the Old Globe Theatre in San Diego, the other as a multiple Tony Award-winning director on Broadway, Tony Awards for Best Direction of a Play for the recent The Coast of Utopia, also for Henry IV, Tony Award for the Best Direction of a Music, in Hairspray, Tony nominations for Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, The Full Monty, The Invention of Love, uh, two Shakespearean actors, and a revival of Porgy and Bess in 1977. We welcome Jack O'Brien. Hi, Jack. I'm happy to be here. Long last. I must tell you, one of those hats that you're discussing is recently slipping to one side. As of last weekend, uh, I, I uh, how do I say this? I uh, was kicked upstairs, walked upstairs, emanated, uh, matriculated to uh, the uh, Artistic Director Emeritus at the Globe, uh, a position I've been sort of negotiating and watching over the last two or three years because I've been almost exclusively here uh, all that time because of the work recently. And uh, that organization needs a daddy uh, literally on on the spot. So uh, it's and I figured it's, it's twenty seven years. I, as I'm fond of saying, after twenty five years, even I was tired of my own taste. Uh, I, and I think that it's wonderful that younger people and newer people are coming in. So that responsibility is now uh, shared by some our audiences may know Darko Treznik, who's done some work here in New York as a very very classy classical director. And Jerry Patch, who for many, many years was the dramaturg at South Coast. And now the two of them are heading up the artistic wing at the Globe. So I'm still their principal fundraiser. I'm still their, um, I don't know what, guardian angel. Uh, I'm on the phone with them and email every day. But um, I'm no longer the go-to guy, and I cannot tell you how happy that makes me. So now you have you have a new business card with the word emeritus on it. Well, yes, or just forgotten but not gone. <laughs> But you say it was evolving and you were negotiating over time. Talk a little bit about the decision to move away from a company that you were with since 1981. The theaters were being rebuilt after a fire and you you came in. Tell us about the evolution it's of that a, role for you. It's, a, it's part of this fabric of my life that I seem to feel I'm suddenly... Uh, floating in a in a on a very quick river in an inner tube, and I just bounce from one corner to the other. Um, the truth of the matter is, is that the Globe's progenitor, Craig Knoll, who just was recently given a National Medal of the Arts in in in, in Washington, is at the moment ninety two years old or ninety two years young. His his eyes are not good and his ears are not good, but boy, the brain is unbelievable and the sense of humor is brilliant as always. Craig has always been there. And in 1978, when the theater burned down at the Globe, and I had been guesting there for the better part of a decade, he invited me to come in as an artistic director, and I I happily embraced it. And then, in fact, he didn't go away. And uh, I, because, to be honest, uh, first of all, he was the keeper of the flame. He knew where all the bodies were buried, but also he was simply one of the best damn directors I knew. And uh, as a result of that, um, we shared the the directorship of that for the entire time I was there. We never asked who was going to make the decision. There was never a word of rancor or confusion between us. I don't know how it happens, but I think in the arts as well as in business, this is the only time I can think of when a CEO stepped aside, invited another CEO to come in, and then didn't leave. And so, you know, over this period of time, I became what I'm fond of saying is the poster boy for regional theater. Uh, uh, people keep saying to me, how can you do Hairspray in one hand and then Henry IV in the other or the invention of love in Full Monty? And I said, you know, anybody who works in the regional theater and is an artistic director there, you have to pick up every possible product all the time. And that's your job. If somebody can't do it, you do it. And over a period of years, I'm the boy who was lifting the calf in the barnyard. And now it's a big bull, if you know what I mean. And I can throw it better than anybody, I suppose. (laughs) But it's fascinating that Craig, as you say, has been there forever and now in his 90s still has an affiliation with the company. 
sort of the same thing has happened. You've stepped aside, and now you and Craig are both looking over another group. Usually when artistic directors step away from a company, they step away from a company. What is it about the environment of the globe that allows this fairly unique opportunity? I think every every plant is its own plant, whether that's botany or you know, business. Uh, they uh, businesses and 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 theaters and events take on the personality of the people that basically guide them and invent them. And and in the case of Craig, who is one of the funniest, most collegial men I've ever known in my life, incredibly wise and and not only wise, wise about possession. Uh, Craig has never been one to sort of say if an actor gets a better job and has to leave his ranks, he never resents it. Uh, A lateral move is questionable, but a a move that's better for your career, that's what he wants. And so even when I said, as I said several years ago, look, we got to figure this out because I cannot be here. I cannot serve that many masters, and this is not healthy. He said, it's okay. It'll all work out, and it has. So I I don't know. I think it's genetic. I think that, uh, or endemic, or however you want to put it, I think it's in the nature of how the globe grew as a community theater, as a a sort of benign influence in the most unlikely place in the world. And there, of course, for years, for 20 years, Desmond Akinov was across town at Little Ohio Playhouse. So that community had two major regional theaters going for it at the same time in Southern California. Go figure. I mean, nothing about it sort of makes sense. So at any rate, we're off the track. But I just wanted you to know that uh, it is with great pleasure that I have this new status, which I'm sort of excited about. And two major regional theaters that do a lot of new work, a lot of new production. Oh, absolutely. Much of the production that, that you did at the Old Globe has moved over the years to Broadway. Well, I think that was uh, true of Des and me, and many, many, D- Dan Sullivan, when he was in Seattle, uh, you know, Mark Lamus when he was at Hartford. I mean, we were the generation who inherited these uh, rather wonderfully equipped and enormously potential uh, uh, frog ponds where that were spawning a great deal of material. And our generation, because we were all people who had had experience and had lived in New York, we thought of ourselves always as being able to straddle both of those uh, continents to be able to be uh, one thing to the community and another thing to the continuation of the, of the work. Uh, over over the 25 years that I was there, we went from basically a, a first-class regional theater to a national theater. And I think that's true of a lot of theaters. It's so exciting for me to see the open the paper today and see Steppenwolf coming in from Chicago with a ton of actors that nobody in New York has ever seen before who happen to be fabulous. And, you know, our, our fraternity, our theatrical fraternity of critics and, and onlookers here will embrace any region theater in Ireland that comes along as being the, the next coming and not go across the Hudson River to see what's being done in Jersey. So it's thrilling to me for us to realize we now have a national theater that we're only now in New York becoming cognizant of that. Something like 20 shows that transferred to Broadway, including uh, Sondheim's Into the Woods. I guess that was the first show that transferred, and many uh, subsequently. Was that part of your goal, was to produce plays that could eventually Moved to New York? Not really. No, actually, not at all. Uh, I never, I never not did a season for the community for the globe. I never ever thought of it that way. I mean, there were pieces that I thought, oh, this this could be really tasty, but one didn't really bank on that. That wasn't the whole point ever, and I never felt that way. Uh, I just think it's something that evolved. I mean, we were throwing off in those years fourteen pieces of work a year. Uh, some of them were classical. Some of them were uh, uh, new pieces. Some of them were, uh, uh, as you say, musicals. Uh, uh, completely spontaneously, we didn't know what we were doing. We were just, you know, getting getting the brochure out, as we say. So it was all brand new. Uh, uh, it was a new time. It was a very exciting time for all of this to be uh, evolving uh, in the way that it did. I want to read you a quote of something you said to the New York Times in 1981 when you went to the Globe. Quote, I'm not leaving New York in bitterness because I had no chance to play. There's not enough work for me there. I decided I would be a fool to stay in New York and work every 15 months. Boy, 25 years later, it's 
<laughs> Very different scenario. Yeah, you know, uh, there's a really sweet and interesting little story there, which has to do with the fact that I, and I don't, I don't really sort of remember exactly how that evolved, but I, I had a, a, uh, a complete epiphany, if you want to say, about my career when years and years ago. Just after I'd done Porgy and Bess, I was sort of immediately the white go-to guy for black projects, which was going on at the time. You know, I mean, we have, you know, George hadn't really assumed, George Wolfe had not assumed his mantle of greatness at that point. And, uh, you know, Ruben uh, Santiago Hudson had not emerged from the pack. I mean, we now have a wonderful supply of men and women of color of all races who are actually working. But at the time, that wasn't true. And I was called to an interview at the public with Joe Papp. And I don't know how to say this, but and maybe it isn't even true, but my perception is I walked in the door and he hated me on sight. I mean, I, I, I don't, I'm not paranoid and I don't, I don't really have a lot of problems in that way, but I just had the feeling that either he was irritating with me or he didn't understand what I was doing. I don't know what it was. He laid me to, as we say fondly, whale shit. I mean, he just tore into me in terms of what the theater should be, what the classical theater should be, what it wasn't. I was stunned. I didn't know what to do. And after it was over, I had a sort of long thought process to myself saying, you know what? You're not going to work here in Manhattan as a classical director if you can't figure out this equation. Because I knew Joe wasn't going to hire me. I knew he, and he didn't. He never did. I thought to myself, I got to go someplace where there's nobody remotely like me, where in fact I can exercise. And there was the globe beckoning to me. And that's why I left at the time that I did. I thought to myself, I need some range. I need, I need room to grow. We've sort of started in the middle because we're talking about the globe. So let's jump back and talk about how you became okay. a classical director and indeed how you got into the theater. Because, in fact, you at first thought you were going to be a musical comedy performer. Yes. Yes, I did. I mean, I, I can't tell you the persona I developed over the years. Um, innocently, I, I, I was a lyricist originally. I, I started out uh, with my college partner, my co college best friend and creative partner, jazz artist Bob James, who, you know, was with Warner Brothers for years and is has sold more records than Carter has liver pills. And, and uh, uh, we've been, we are still uh, incredibly close. He and his wife and I are extremely close friends. Uh, we started at the University of Michigan together. And when his wife, Judy, and I were the sort of singing lunts of the University of Michigan at the time, <laughs> I mean, I, my, my first debut of, of any consequence was Mr. Snow to her Carrie Pibridge. And then I did Are You Sitting Down, Hodge to her La Lume and Kismet. And then, of course, my hair fell out, and so that was the end of my career. But uh, I, 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 I thought at the time, basically, because Bob and I had written two musicals at college, and I, I thought we were going to be the next Learner Low. I thought that's what was going on. That's, I thought, where the field was leading me. And indeed, it wasn't leading me there. Uh, I uh, uh, went a completely different way. And they, uh, I stopped writing uh, lyrics with Bob because Bob started recording and working with Sarah Vaughan. And there was no room for Jack on that bench. Mm -hmm. So uh, I suddenly looked around and thought, what am I going to do next? And uh, one thing led to another. And at that time, coming right out of the uni University of Michigan, uh, I, was a, uh, I was a graduate student at the University of Michigan. And into that community in Ann Arbor came this little itinerant group of actors, uh, the APA, the Association of Producing Artists, which was led by Ellis Rabb and his then-wife, Rosemary Harris, and had in it untried actors like Will Gear, who went on to be Grandpa Walton, and Nancy Marchand, who, you know, went on to the, 
I guess, eventually the, the Sopranos. And people like, uh, oh, uh, amazing people. Uh, uh, um, Franny Sternhagen. Franny Sternhagen, Brian Bedford. Uh, it, it went on and on and on. It was extraordinary. Uh, Keen Curtis, uh, Betty Miller, all sorts of people who worked for years with them. And I tagged along to New York. And I wanted the to be. The circus came to town and you, all, you went came, with them? I came sort of with the circus. I went with the circus. That's absolutely right. And I wanted desperately to, to I was just mesmerized by these people. I'd never seen theater like this. And certainly we weren't being taught it at the University of Michigan at that time. And and uh, so when they came to, to town and I came to teach at Hunter College, where I was teaching voice and, and, and diction, not knowing anything else, not knowing much about that while we're at it. Um, nevertheless, I... I begged them to let me be a part of this organization. And Ellis hired me as his rehearsal uh, a cover. And then while I was still teaching at Connor College in the Bronx. Explain what that means. Well, it meant cover. that he was directing himself in plays, and he had to have somebody move around on the stage and say his lines. And I remember at a party, quite loaded, saying to him, uh, uh, he said, would you do this for no pay, please remember. I mean, you know, just come down and 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 I, I was so excited to get into their rehearsals. And I said, "Will you promise to watch me?" And he said, with his deep sepulchral tones, "I won't be able to take my eyes off you." <laughs> Meaning, of course, he never liked me as an actor. He thought I was a terrible actor. <laughs> but but uh, I that's the way I started. And and there it happened. The great postgraduate career of my generation, without knowing it, I took a 50% pay cut to work with this company, leave teaching behind, um, and be, take the notes for Ellis Rabb, John Houseman, Eva Legallion, Stephen Porter, and Alan Schneider. All of them directing for that company, all of them different directors, directing in a different style, and me, the little sort of what? Uh, rehearsal sort of uh, gopher and maybe one day playwright lyricist watching them not succeed but make mistakes can you just read a litany or said a list, litany of names of major major directors and you say that you learned from each of them can you encapsulate what seeing each of them work was like and what do you think you took from them? Well, uh, uh, I wish I could. I mean, there goes the, there goes the hour. Uh, um, I mean, Ellis was... People don't know Ellis any longer. He's not a figure in the landscape as he once was. And one of the last great things he did was a rather... in which he won his only Tony, which was for a revival of the royal family with Rosemary Harrison, Sam Levine, and Eva Legallion, and, and George Grizzard, who's just recently died. And wonderful, wonderful people. Ellis actually acted in it eventually. But, but he was... Oh, my God. He'd come out of Carnegie Mellon, Carnegie Tech. He and his college pal, William Ball, and they both, curiously enough, in the late 50s, early 60s, began their own theater companies. They were messianic men. They were men who felt that the American theatrical tradition had to include a big appetite of big classical gesture. For those who don't know, Bill Ball founded the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. That's correct. And and the and APA and ACT, those that that mouthful of, of um, alphabet, um, were basically rival and twin classical American companies in the middle, late part of the last century, and, and deservedly so. But at any rate, uh, there was Ellis, who was all theater. There was the Galleon, who brought, uh, you, you know, the, the, the civic repertory theater into mind, who bought, brought Peggy Webster into mind, who, who was a woman of enormous intellect and, and tradition of American theater. We'd rarely seen anybody like Legallion when she, when she started mounting her productions. Uh, she was a pioneer as well. There was Stephen Porter, who had a great brain and and wonderful finesse and not a lot of theatricality. There was Alan Schneider, who was a renegade and was, in fact, impossible and exciting at the same time to work with. He was insulting to actors or loved them at the same time. He was, he was a handful. Uh, they all had different styles. Uh, 
And over all was the paterfamilias John Houseman. You know, he earned it. That voice, that persona, that that man who was so important with the Juilliard School and and uh, and the whole, I think, continuity of Orson Welles and his legacy. Houseman brought to the table. I mean, here I am, this kid from Saginaw, Michigan, awash in theatricality with all these people sort of uh, uh, clamoring for me to take notes. And boy, did I learn. And how long did your, so to speak, graduate studies with these these great individuals go on? And and did at what point did you say to yourself, now I'm ready to start moving on in my career? Well, I I was everybody's assistant for at least five years until uh-huh. I was going mad, uh-huh. mad if I didn't get to direct something. Uh-huh. And Ellis, like most Oedipal relationships, was not eager to give me my own shot. Houseman, who was the overall producer of that situation, saw clearly that I was straining at the leash and contrived for me to direct a production of Cockadoodle Dandy at the University of Michigan in our residency there, knowing full well that something would fall out of the rep and that APA would need a wild card. And it was Houseman that negotiated my Broadway debut, uh, and basically, and, and out of the great kindness of, of his heart. Uh, uh, but... I didn't know that was going to happen. I, I don't think John did either. And it was indeed your debut directing actors Richard Easton, who you continue to work with, Donald Moffat, Franny Sternhagen, and ba- young Barry Boston. That's exactly. That's exactly right. Uh, uh, but but you know we we it, it came out of nowhere and. APA itself died about 1969. It had an almost 10-year run. Uh, Rosemary and Ellis, their marriage broke up. She left the company to go back to the National Theater for a while. Ellis took an, another year and a half to sort of try to sort of salvage things, and then he got tired of it. And Houseman then took me to Juilliard, where I directed uh, Christine Baranski and, and Greg Mosier and people like this in, uh, in my first couple of years there. Uh, 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 that's where I met Chris Reeve. Actually, not true. Uh, uh, Chris Reeve was uh, hired by me in 1972 as a non-equity actor, because he looked 22 at least. He was 17, to play young Master Fenton in my production of um, uh, The Merry Wives of Windsor. And based on that summer, we took him out to San Diego, where he played young Master Fenton and a few other parts completely beyond him. And Ellis and I contrived to get him into Juilliard to study there. And that's how that relationship started. Oh, there are skeins and skeins <laughs> being woven here. Believe me. Well, Cockadoodle uh, do in 1969, was yeah, it? 69. Yeah, was your Broadway directorial debut. It was. How did you become Jack O'Brien, the director, as opposed to these other people that you had been understudying, basically observing all these years? In I, other words, how, how did you find your own voice in directing the show? Not very gracefully, may I say. <laughs> not very gracefully. I mean, uh, uh, don't forget that Cockadoodle Dandy was a sort of uh, a, a filler for the University of Michigan season. We had, at that time, the most astonishing season because we were at the, the, the Lyceum in New York. Then we went to what was then the Huntington-Hartford, became the Jimmy Doolittle later in, in Los Angeles. Then we went to Ann Arbor, Michigan. Then we went to the Royal Alex in Toronto and then back to New York. So this was a full year of, of rep acting for this company that eventually by that time included Helen Hayes. It, uh, it included, uh, 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 oh, my God, the people who joined it. Uh, uh, Melvin Douglas joined it for a while and then had a scare with cancer and had to leave it. Uh, it was uh, Brian Bedford and Franny came in at that point. Nancy Walker was in it, uh, the, the great comedian. She was playing things like Charlotta Ivanovna in the Cherry Orchard. Uta Hagen came into the company at that time. It was it was unbelievable. But that was that was the end of that nine year stretch. And then uh, and at that point, uh, uh, this little engagement in San Diego, I had, uh, frankly, the second stringers. And when the shows when we finally lost a show and had to replace it with something, Richard Easton went in for uh, uh, Peter Caulfield, and Franny Sternhagen went in for somebody else, and we upped the, uh, the, the you know, and there I was slightly starstruck <laughs> by all of these people, and the and the show, 
uh, actually, I, I, what happens to most young directors is your work is very derivative for quite some time. You emulate other people. I had there was so much of Ellis in my work, and there was so much of the Ellis's theatricality that was not yet earned that I had yet to figure out. So uh, I had a long way to go before. The Jack O'Brien uh, that we know and love <laughs> emerged from uh, obscurity, I guess. You began finding your way out to San Diego. You already mentioned it, that you were involved in bringing Chris Reeve out there. Um, almost immediately, how did the relationship with the Globe begin, certainly more than a decade before you became the artistic director? Well, that's again, how the, that's how the theater works. The theater really works not through theory. The theater works basically through relationships. And yes, in fact, agencies and, and uh, machinations and plotting can work, but you basically hire the people you know and like. I think that's the way I work. Uh, I was Ellis Rabb's Sherpa. He was directing out there in the late 60s, and I had the luggage. And, and, and because I was his doppelganger, his amanuensis, his assistant, I mean, I walked the dog, I drove the car, I did flat work, I did, you know, I shopped for groceries, I did whatever you had to do to become indispensable, which is really what I thought my raison d'etre was. And so, one summer, uh, Ellis, who had was a great friend of Craig Knoll's and had done some beautiful work out there. Craig Knoll robbed Carnegie Mellon, Carnegie Tech then, of Alan Fletcher, Bill Ball, Ellis Rabb, uh, uh, Milton Katselis, a whole group of creative people in the mid-time part of the last century to do his summer festivals out there. Because in the winter, it was, a, it was just a, uh, an amateur theater. In the summer, he had a, a classical company. And extraordinary people came through there. John Voigt played Ariel and Romeo out there. Uh, uh, you know, he, uh, amazing people cut their teeth uh, at these fe- these Shakespearean festivals in the, in the middle part of the last century. And so Ellis had directed successfully for Craig, and he loved Craig and loved the festival. And so at one point I schlepped through with the luggage. And there was Nicholas Martin playing a small part uh, on stage, and there was there was uh, all of the Jacqueline Brooks and all of these these actors that I'd heard of years before uh, performing out there. And there was Craig, and Craig adored me. And so, as fate would have it, in 1969, Ellis brought his dear best friend Richard Easton back from London to play Macbeth with Seda Thompson in a production that he was going to do of Macbeth. Richard was going to direct himself as Brutus in in, uh, Julius Caesar. And, oh, yes, we have to have a comedy. Well, let's do the comedy of errors. And, oh, I don't know, let's give it to Jack. Well, Antipholus was Chris Walken. And and Seda Thompson was in it, and and Lawrence Guitard was in it, and I mean it was a great company, and I uh, and guess what the hit of the summer was? Bob James did the music, I mean, and the, and we opened, and the it was vulgar and overdirected within an inch of its life, but <laughs> hilariously funny. And guess what else? On the opening night, the kid playing Dromeo of of uh, Syracuse, yes falls and has does an injury to the patella on his knee and has to go in the hospital. And there's no one to play Chris opposite Chris Walken. And, of course, like most young directors, I knew every word of the script by the time it opened. And the stage manager, who was the cover, was either going to have to go on with the book or they wanted me to play. So I said, okay, I'll play. So uh, I went on, gave a speech to the audience saying, I'm terribly sorry, but at this performance... I'm going to do this. And then Chris and I proceeded to tear the place <laughs> apart. And finally, there was a long prologue where the entire company was listening to the story being told of, of these twins. And Seda was blo- I was at the inner above uh, as, as Dromeo. And Seda's on the inner above. And I see her edging closer and closer to me. We're about six days into it. And we're getting standing ovations and people screaming every night <laughs> at the curtain call. And Seda bumps me with her knee and says, don't you think it's about time you stopped giving the apology? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I said, oh, sorry, I, I will. So I stopped giving the speech. And we still got standing ovations. And I've got to tell you, this is a great moment in my life. There's a thing that an actor can do with, with a laugh, if you know how to do this right. It's like banking a snooker shot. You get the laugh, 
Then you think about what you've just said, and they laugh again. Then you shift your thought one more time, and you can get around. And it's like it's like a home run. I mean, you've not only got the laugh, you get two more without doing anything. And I know it's what all actors, every comic actors, hope for and long for, because it's such a great thing. At the moment it was happening, I realized completely in my head how I didn't like doing this, that I was not enjoying it. I should have been thrilled, and instead it was costing me the earth. And I thought to myself, well, we know one thing, you don't want to act anymore. And I never did. Well, you had originally wanted to be a star in musical comedy. Here I you did. are in a comedy, not a musical. I did. And you're having this realization that you should not be up on stage. How did that affect you as a director then, having performed, albeit briefly? I think in an odd way, actors know two things intuitively about me. Uh-huh. They know that I love what they do. That's very clear. I love the acting mystery. And although I do understand it, I never pretend that I could do it. So I don't think they ever feel either competitive with me that I'm saying, do it like I do it. What, what I like to say is that I act for actors. By that I mean I will act the subtext. I will open my veins and show them anything about myself that is valuable without making it sound like this is the way you should play the part because I don't know what they're going to seize on, and I shouldn't. It's part of their mystery. You've spoken of all of the opportunities Ellis Rabb gave you. Another of your mentors, John Hausman, gave you the opportunity to be involved at the start, really, of the now-famed The Acting Company in their early years. Can you talk about your work there? I wanted that company. I wanted I wanted to be a baby artistic director even then. I mean, you know, there was Kevin and Patty and, and uh, Mary Lou Rosado and David Schramm and all the kids from that original company who were brilliant. David Ogden Stiers, he, all, he left quickly uh, about the time that I, I joined them. <clears throat> Excuse me. But they uh, they were itinerant, too, in the way that I understood. And and uh, they they were on a bus. And I wanted John and Margot to let me go with them and be their daddy. And they were perfectly happy for me to go with them, but they, but they didn't want me to be their daddy. By that I mean, when I asked Hausman why I couldn't... I was an associate artistic director of that company for a year and a half, and I wanted him to give it to me. And John said, no. And I said, why not? And he said, you're the best kept secret in the American theater, and I can't raise a dime on you. Go and make your international reputation. Hmm. And in that sentence were two things that sort of ameliorated my disappointment and my, uh, my rejection. One was that it made sense to me that I had to be bankable in order to be to bring to any theater event a certain amount of capital. That hadn't occurred to me. And two, that John thought me capable of an international reputation. And was it that production of Porgy and Bess in the mid-'70s that did that? It did, you was. did that originally for the Houston Grand Opera, I did, yeah. and it was brought in. Had you been doing a lot of opera work at that no, point? No, no. I had done... I had done uh, well, this is also... So comic. I mean, I, my, I, my life is such a bizarre little, you know, tumble of damp, dried articles in, in the dryer. Um, I had gone down in the 70s to, to the great Larry Kelly, who ran Dallas Civic Opera and the Kansas City Opera. And I had done, because Ellis couldn't do it, a production of Dido and Aeneas with Tatiana Troianos, John Vickers, and Graziella Schutti. That was my debut. And and uh, uh, Jose Limon was supposed to do the choreography, and he got ill. And Dan, uh, Daniel Lewis, who was his associate at that time and, and uh, who inherited that company, was my choreographer. That was my debut. Then, in the early 70s, guesting with Bill Ball up in San Francisco, where Ellis passed me, as a pal, the uh, the spring opera called and said, Did any, "Does anybody know abduction from the Seraglio?" And I choked back, "No, but if you hum me a few bars, I'll fake it." <laughs> I learned it in forty eight hours and went into uh, tech rehearsal hmm. for spring opera, from which I was given the, with the San Francisco Opera that following year the Magic Flute. Um, but Porgy came. I was the last person hired. 
for that production of Porgy and Bess. Everybody. John Demaine, the conductor, uh, the entire company, the designers, everybody was hired. They wanted Hal Prince to do it. It was the bicentennial. And Hal, like most major directors, was booked, as he probably is now, two and three years in advance. And it was a bicentennial production and nothing would do it. They, and he wanted desperately to do it. And Hal knew me because I had done this... Oh, God, we're really getting draconian here. I had done this thwarted, devastating production of The Selling of the President uh, in 1972 as a lyricist and librettist for his then-partner, John Flaxman, who was operating out of the George Abbott office. Hal knew who I was. But they couldn't remember who my name was. I was directing for the American <laughs> Opera Center at Juilliard, and John DeMaine was doing this production of the worst opera you ever heard in your life. I don't care if this man's alive and if he's listening tonight. His name is Geoffredo Petrassi, and he's a contemporary Italian, and he writes, I don't know what he writes, but it didn't make any sense at all. It was a sort of an Italian farce. It was a one act. I did this with John DeMaine. That's how I met John. And and one night, he came into the theater when I was lighting it with somebody else's set and somebody else's whatever, and I'm putting this together, and he stands in the back of the theater, and he told me later, he said, my God, this kid really knows what he's doing. He really knows not only how to create a, a theatrical event, but he knows how to take care of it. So he went to the producer, Sherwin-Goldman, and David Gockley, and said, this guy I'm working with should do the Porgy. They came to me and said... Who should direct Porgy and Bess? And I said, a black woman. And they said, why would you say that? And I said, because it seems to me in the 70s that the most interesting journey in Porgy and Bess is that of Bess, who's basically this high-toned sort of, you know, almost hooker, who then goes with a crippled man. And I said, you know, that's such an interesting journey. These black women in the 20s who had no measure of their own independence had to depend on the strongest man in the community. And I think only a woman would understand that. Oh, they said, who would that be? And I said, Vinette Carroll's the only black director that I know at the time, because once again, she'd worked with APA. And I loved Vinette. So they went to Vinette, and they, she said, I'd love to do this. How much time have you got? And they said, three weeks. And she said, honey, I need three months to do that. <laughs> so they came back to me, and guess what? They hired me. And I knew, in my heart, I knew they would. But when... They went to Hal to tell him who was directing it. They said, it's this Irish kid, Jack Kelly, because they couldn't remember <laughs> my name. And Hal sweetly said, oh, well, look, if you believe in this guy, of course you must go with him. If they, Hal said to me later, if they'd said Jack O'Brien, I would have said, what a great idea. Of course, get him. You know. <laughs> so you well, but that was my debut. That actually put me on the map. That gave me cred, street cred. That made me bankable. I was suddenly a figure in the landscape, and the next move came from Craig to go to the Globe because he could raise money on me. Usually, when a production is being assembled, the director, if not the first person, is usually one of the first people who's brought in. Here you are the last person. Last and the whitest person you have ever seen in your life. So how did you approach it? You had three weeks to, to get your act together. So I to loved the music. And you know, I, I had buried a lover by that time and my parents. And I thought to myself, I don't know. I don't think we love so differently. And I don't think we grieve so differently. And this opera is about both things, passion and and death. And so I figured I would simply tell the truth and ask for their help. And guess what? Nobody'd ever done that. That production, that production of Borgie and Bess was in the guardianship of Ella Gerber, who had been the stage manager for the famous Bobby Breen production that went to Russia with, with Leontine Price and William Moorfield. And it was in the rights to the piece that Ella Gerber staged the piece for 20 years. So I was the first person after that uh, tenure to take the piece on. And I turned to the black kids and said, help me, tell me what to do. And did they ever. The great thing was when we were in Tex, in Houston, uh, Eva Jesse, who controlled the first choir, the, the, the ensemble that created Porky and Bess. She was in town. 
and they wanted me to meet Miss Jessie. And they had a dinner for her after the rehearsal one night in which I sat at her feet while she never met my eyes, and she dropped wisdom into my lap like shelled peas. She told me everything I needed to know, and it all went into Porgy and Bess. Wow. You had this great success with Porgy and Bess. You also did a revival of Most Happy Fella not long thereafter. Um, But then you did go out to San Diego, and you weren't seen or heard from on Broadway again for more than a decade. Yeah, well, I know. I brought in... We brought in Pete Gurney's beautiful play, The Cocktail Hour, mm-hmm. with Nancy Marchand and, and King Curtis and Holland Taylor and and uh, Bruce Davis. Off Broadway, that came off Broadway. Right. Yeah, that was the that was my that was my bedroom slipper in the door, as it were. So, tell us about the transition. Certainly, as we talk about all of your hats and all of the work that people know. How did you become a go-to guy for big Broadway musicals? Because we look at things like like Damn Yankees and certainly Hairspray and Full Monty and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Um, I started, don't forget, I started as a musical punk comedy baby. I was, a, I was an actor and a singer. And then, don't forget, in the early part of my career, I was writing musicals with Bob James. Mm-hmm. So I was totally in the structure. I thought I was going to be the new Alan J. Lerner. That's really what I wanted to be. Uh, and when the selling of the president went up in flames, or down in flames, as it were, uh, and it was a crucial, a sort of amazing shock to me to suddenly wake up and realize that I was not an inevitability. I didn't know what to make of my life, and I had all of this directing experience through the hands of these great mentors. So I shifted my focus to directing, but I never lost my love and my passion and my my secret desire to actually work um, in, in musicals. Now, enter into the picture in 1982-3, St. Suber, the um, amazing, legendary, er- eccentric producer of famously Kiss Me Kate. And St. came to me and said, I want you to do this at the Globe, we should remount it, and you've got to rewrite the book because it needs to be updated. Now, again, Rosemary Harris, when she first came to America, was under the guidance and tutelage of Sam and Bella Spiewak, who saw her in London and loved her and became sort of like, I don't know, godparents to her. Because I was working with Ellis and Rosemary and organizing them, I was this new toy. So Rosemary calls Bella. Sam is now dead. This is now 1964 and says, Bella, we've got this great guy who can really organize you. I'm going to send him up. So I went up and spent weeks wandering around Sam and Bella's Spiewak's apartment with Bella, who was only four inches tall and with a voice like that. She talked like that all the time. She would, you'd feel, you'd be in an opening night. You feel your elbow tugged. You look over, no one. You look down and there's Bella and she's saying, Second act's a lot of crap, don't you think? (laughs) She was just (laughs) fabulous. So Bella's sort of non-compass menace at this point. Saint convinces me to rewrite the book, and I did. I adapted it for a regional theater, and I made it about the globe, and it it had basically uh, uh, the Petruchio, the, the leading character, was the artistic director, the Bill Calhoun was the managing director, <laughs> and Lily Vanessi was the queen of the miniseries in Los Angeles. And it was all about laundering money through the Del Mar racetrack in, in La Jolla. It was extraordinary. <laughs> so I completely redid this. And it was a huge hit at that time. And, and, um, uh, actually, people came out from New York to see it, but it had never been, Kiss Me Kate had never been revived on Broadway as it was. So nobody felt that they could take a chance and do an adaptation, but it was swell. But once again, in about seven years' different time, I put my hands on and into another musical. And then I get a call while I'm directing an, uh, my second Othello. <laughs> Would I like to do the revival of damn Yankees and I fell in love at a, at the Clio musical tent in Michigan watching a, 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 a performance of damn Yankees when I was like 17, 18 years old uh, that's why I'm in the theater today I really think that's true yes I wanted to do it but the book was very outdated and very long 
And the producer, Mitchell Maxwell, said, you know, well, why don't you show George Abbott, who's 105 at this point, uh, what you mean? Yeah, yeah, right. Okay. So I do for the first 18 pages, and, and I keep writing it. And Mr. Abbott is fascinated because at now at 101, he's done a, a revival of Damn Yankees at the Paper Mill Playhouse, thinking it was his annuity, and it didn't work. And he was stunned. And here comes this young whippersnapper. I'm now 48 or something like this, who has, you know, all the answers. Who knows? He's going to see what I have to do. Really smart. Listen, I got to tell you guys, I've dealt with every widow alive. <laughs> I'm not kidding. You. Bella Spiewak, um, uh, Lada Lenya, Joe Sullivan. Uh, uh, oh, my God. It go- the list goes on. It's, 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 and none of them will let you change so much as a semicolon. But the creator... George Abbott, alive, knew that there was something going on and he wanted it. So at one point, I had so thoroughly rewritten it that he said, well, there's not a lot of me left in here. And I said, yes, there is. But Mr. Abbott, look, we know yours works. Come to the globe and see it. And if you don't like it, we'll just do yours. And the night after the opening, when he did come out at 105 to see it, and I was, he, they wheeled him in the next morning at that hotel for me to take my notes. He made the great comment, what does it matter what I say? They stood, didn't they? And ruefully, he was saying, it's a hit and I want it. And he took it. He took all the material. No one can do that version again. Uh, his wife controls the rights. And uh, so far as I know, no one's ever going to see it again. And I always wanted to do a matinee of my version and an evening of his so people could see the difference because nobody nobody thought it was different at all. Hmm. And it was everything about it was different, so it was amazing. Well, how did I get in this? I'm really sorry. Well, you, 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 talk, you talk about the, the various widows you've dealt with over the years. You talked about Bella Spiewak, who, of course, did the original Kiss Me, Kate. You changed more than just a comma in that. Oh, no. It was so adorable <laughs> because she, Bella had her days when she was uh-huh. quite lucid. Uh-huh. And they took the script to her. And I, if we were on camera, I could do the funniest impression you've ever seen of her, sort of slightly going through this page, quietly page after page after page after page after page. For 20 minutes, there's no word from Bella. She looks up and says, a lot of changes. <laughs> and that was the end of it. But she loved me. And she, she knew that I wasn't going to betray her. And she said, for some unbelievable reason, yeah, I'll let him do it. So all along the line, while I'm out in San Diego doing, you know, and, and or producing three classical plays in summer, I also have my finger in this musical th- world that I've never really left. Mm-hmm. The you, difference is by the time my work started coming east, I got past the point where I had to sort of figure out how to do it, and I knew how to do it. It was just a matter of selecting what project I was going to select and how I wanted to, to, to address it. We're talking about, we've been talking about revivals, we've been talking about classical plays, doing new musicals, the opportunity to create fully, to be involved in the creation of a new musical. Can you talk about the approach, to, your approach to that? Well, there's nothing more thrilling, there's nothing more daunting, there's nothing more uh, idiosyncratic than facing new material on the stage. There just isn't. I mean, I've always believed that the uh, our national contribution to the arts, the musical theater piece, the musical comedy, if you wish, is the the difficulty with it is it is the most collaborative of all the art forms. I mean, you can't, if you're in an edit bay with your editor and tons of film, you can come up with something that actually is better than anything you shot. But when you're standing in the middle of a stage with, you know, dancers and singers and dance arrangers and and orchestrators and lighting designers and their assistants and everybody else's assistants, all of their points of view can contribute or not to the direction that this living baby is going to go. And there's there's nothing quite like it. you, you have to be able to listen to everybody. You have to be able to hear everybody. And you, yeah, like, I suppose, um, somebody steering a ship, you have to have a very clear idea of the water and the journey ahead of you in order to do that. Uh, it's unlike anything 
I know and all of my collective experience with Shakespeare and revivals and all of this has contributed to, in no small part to say nothing of the relationships of people I've been able to, the friends that I have, relationships like Terrence McNally or Jerry Mitchell, who are, are beyond familial by this time. Um, all, all of this contributes to the way this amorphous thing struggles to its feet, puts on a straw hat, and kicks your ass. We talk about, almost in the same breath, all the various Shakespeare plays you've directed. We talk about Hairspray, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. We talk about The Full Monty. We talk also, we haven't even mentioned, except at the beginning, uh, The Coast of Utopia, Tom Stoppard. How do you as a director approach all these very different uh, different plays, different musicals? It's a, it's a sort of interesting question. I wish it had a really interesting answer. It doesn't. Uh, uh, I've learned, I guess the hard way, that... I have to respond to something. I have to feel that I, on some level, it engages me, that it moves me, mm-hmm. or makes me laugh, or that it thrills me. If I find myself in it in some bizarre way, I think I can probably find my way through it. But I think I'm there to serve the writer, always, the composer and 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 the librettist and the playwright. That's really... Uh, I I am the I stand between them and the interpreters, and I stand for them, and and uh, I, I don't I like it best when I'm really not seen much at all. The Coast of Utopia, almost yeah. nine hours long, three three basic shows, a trilogy, but three different uh, different shows in that in that trilogy. How did you get involved with that, and what what attracted you to it? You had worked with Stoppard. You'd done other Stoppard plays previously. Well, first of all, I met with Tom and, and Stocker Channing over a piece called Hapgood at the at uh, the Lincoln Center in the Mitzi, uh, which Tom called his loose tooth play because he believed in it and it never worked. And that's where I met the great Bob Crowley, and that that was the first of that association between Crowley and Tom and myself, which turned out to be quite a juicy and very titillating little experiment, and it worked very well. As a result, when the Invention of Love came along, it seemed logical that uh, Lincoln Center would do it, and it seemed logical then that they would engage the same team that had been successful before, and so we engaged uh, on our next journey, which was uh, at the Lyceum Theater, and was also uh, a, a sort of an astonishment, because that was a very opaque a very complicated, very dense script, uh, very erudite, and could have been very off-putting, but we managed to make it very sexy and very beautiful and and very theatrical, which uh, you know, which Tom's work can take. So it was assumed when the Coast of Utopia happened that Crowley and I would be engaged to do it. Assumed by Tom and assumed by everybody except Crowley and me. Uh, uh, when we saw it, I, I mean, don't forget. Uh, I had almost four years from the moment that I saw Trevor's production, Trevor Nunn's production, at the National to when I went into rehearsal a year ago with that piece. It was four years of thinking, of sorting through, of meeting with Tom, of concerns, of evolving, of approach, of denial, of panic, of fear, of frustration, of inadequacy, of, of, of blind, unbelievable panic. Before the penny dropped, and I said, here's my baton, away we go. It's very interesting to me that so many people who saw the production in England and saw your production talked about the growth and the different approach. And indeed, I read an interview with you uh, on Invention of Love where you talked about having seen the English production of the show and thinking there were things that you could bring to it. You mentioned the word approach and that long litany of of thoughts about as you got into Coast of Utopia, but what would you say your approach was to these plays that might have differed from the way people saw them in their original English productions? Well, I mean, first of all, one has to be very careful about this because, um, um, as Shakespeare says, comparisons are odorous. I have, in every case, not Hapgood, but in the case of... Uh, the Invention of Love, I had seen several times Richard Eyre's production, original production. And in the case of The Coast of Utopia, I went to school on Trevor's. Now look, Richard Eyre and Trevor Nunn, those are pretty good people to watch. Um, and they know what they're doing. In fairness, 
uh, Tom was writing the piece. They did all three pieces at the same time. He was writing it while Trevor was already directing it. In in all deference to everyone, including Tom, I don't think they knew what the hell they had. I don't think they could. It was so big. It was. It took the better part of three years of prep before I thought to myself, "Oh, wait a minute, this isn't three plays. It's a one three act play that is spread over a huge canvas. I've got to stop thinking about it in terms of its component parts, and I have to wrap my mind around all of it. That said, both with The Invention of Love and with Ghost of Utopia, I'm on the side of the audience. I mean, I don't know, guys. I'm I, I'm not that smart. I, I No, I'm not. That is not... Uh, I'm serious. I... I don't have a priori an immediate intellectual grasp of these things. I went to see rock and roll as an audience member. I'd read an early version, but I purposely wanted to see, can I understand Tom's work if I don't study it? Can I do that? And you know what? Yes, you can, because Tom's a great writer, and he gives you what you need. He may not give it to you in little tiny jello sips, but he will give it to you if you're patient. He'll tell you what you need to know. All of those Latin and Greek passages in in Invention of Love were immediately followed by translations. If you just had a little patience, he told you what all that meant. So I I really, you know, I, I went to school on these pieces, but I'm on the side of the audience. I know they're confused. I know they're intimidated. I know it's long. I know it's foreign. I know it's philosophical. I know it's about math. You know, and I and I like to think of myself as being not particularly gifted in all of those subjects. And so I think to myself, how can I make this not only honest, but palliative to these people? How can I keep them happy and engaged and make them not think they're being left out, but rather included? For instance, the, co- the, the invention of love takes place at college. Okay, let's all go back to our freshman year. We're away from our folks. We're not at home anymore. And I don't know, think back. Even the nerds were beautiful. Everybody seemed, there was, it was so sexy. I don't know about you guys, but college was, I mean, everything was roaring in your ears. All of the, your intellectual excitement, people taking you seriously, dating, leaves falling, who knows? It was all gorgeous. And so instead of it being dry and academic, I thought it was sexy. And of course, the repressed sexuality is a powerful, powerful animal in the invention of love. So when I started to, when Crowley and I started to think of ways that we could interpret this in 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 ways that were fair and honest but still fun it didn't exclude the audience's attention and that's sort of where i was going with the coast of utopia coast of utopia for which you won the tony uh, in 2007 now the grinch how the grinch stole christmas yeah. is, is running on broadway what's next for you uh catch me if you can uh-huh. is is uh, is immediately coming a stage up. version of the movie Yes, that's not a, a musical. Right. By musical. basically, yeah. by the creative team that did Hairspray, Mark Shaman and Scott uh-huh. Whitman doing the music, and Jerry Mitchell doing the choreography, right. and and David Rockwell doing the physical production, but Terrence McNally this time doing the book, because uh, Terrence and I love each other, and we've known each other for a long time. So that's coming up. We're, we're swinging that around the winter, and we should be ready to show everybody what we've got the end of February, early March, and then we'll see how quickly we can get into production and where it should go. Uh, there are two other projects, I uh, as well, two other huge musicals that I'm uh, pushing around my desk trying to figure out right now, as well as I owe Lincoln Center a big classical play in the next you know 12 months to 18 months, as long as we can schedule it. So, uh, um, And you know what I'm fond of saying? One word about, about, about Grinch, because the Grinch came to me 10 years ago at, in San Diego. That's what it was. And I wanted, I don't know, I think there's no one who doesn't remember the first time they went to the theater. Because you don't wander into a theater, you're taken to the theater. Either your parents or a teacher or a relative, somebody takes you to the theater. And that first time in, for me in Saginaw, Michigan, was in, the, uh, in a movie theater at 10 o'clock in the morning with my elementary school chums watching the Claire Tree Major players do Rumpelstiltskin, you know, with sets that fell over. And I still thought it was the most magical thing in my life. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if I could put 
all of the theater magic that we know how to do in one little ball for a child to see for the first time they go to the theater, which includes black-on-black magic, it includes puppetry, it includes music and dancing, it includes children, it includes uh, theatrical things like it's snowing in the theater, things that you don't know. I thought, it's like the Catholic Church. We'd have these kids forever if we get a hold of them. (laughs) So we started that 10 years ago, and it grew and grew and grew. And finally, uh, the widow Zeus, another one of my famous widows, um, Audrey Geisel, decided that it could be done in New York. And it was the first rumor I heard was going from the Little Globe to Radio City Music Hall and then worse to, to Madison Square Garden. But we finally got it where it belongs, which is basically at a Broadway theater with all the original components and all the original creator are, uh, are still involved. This time, Matt August, who is one of my acolytes, I'm putting all these people into the stream, and Matt is one of my shining examples. Um, he went out, learned it, uh, actually did it because I was doing Coast of Utopia while it went up last year. We worked together this year to put some refinements and stuff in it, but he, he herded it in, and I'm very proud of him. For you, doing spoke it. Early, you spoke earlier of Hal Prince having his calendar full for the next couple of years. Sounds like yours is as well. I know. <laughs> it's kind of nice, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Jack, Jack O'Brien, Thanks so much for being with us today on Downstate Center. Very I'm sorry it didn't make any sense, but you know we did we did manage to hit all the bases, and it was a pleasure and an honor. It was to be terrific. Here. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Jack, for the American Theater Wing. I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online on demand for free from our website www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap. And thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.